0: Praise the Lord everybody. Praise the Lord in Jesus name. name. I like that in Jesus name. In Jesus name is an adverbial prepositional phrase and an adverbial phrase is a phrase that tells how, when, where and sometimes why. And in this case we're telling people how we're praising the Lord. We're praising him. In the name of Jesus. I'm enjoying being here very much. I'm really, I'm just so relaxed and feel so good. And today I had one of the best dinners I've had all year long. Sister Mitchell fries some chicken. And I mean, that chicken was good enough to join the church. (laughs) I've been wanting some good fried chicken for a long time. When you really want some really good fried chicken, you can't go to the Colonel because the Colonel don't have it. And Popeye don't have it. But I had it today and I truly really enjoyed it. That dinner was saying something. It was screaming. And I went on and told Elder Mitchell I'm going to go on and just eat too much and backslide and let him pray me back and restore me. And when I got through, my my plate looked like a chicken graveyard. But Jesus knows I wanted some chicken real bad. We had mashed potatoes and we had slaw and we had them fresh garden tomatoes with that tomato we taste. And the more hot house tomatoes taste all flat. And had real, real live tomatoes and everything was just green beans. It was good. It was, all, y'all should have been there. But ain't no point going by tonight because I didn't leave nothing. All right, while you pray for me this evening, I'm going to use Judges, Judges 12 and 6, Acts 26, 28, and Second 2 Timothy 2.15. And in the book of Judges, I want to use the British Revised Version because it makes this particular verse more clear than it is in the King James Version Judges 12 and 6 and they said unto them say now Shibboleth and they said Shibboleth because they could not pronounce it correctly and they slew that day at the passages of Jordan, two thousand and forty of the Ephraimites. Acts twenty six twenty eight. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Second Timothy two fifteen says, Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth now what i want to do is i want to take these three verses and make a synthesis out of them you know people always ask me why i have to get so many verses when i preach they say why don't you do like other preachers and just get one verse and go on and speak Well, when i was going to school we had this class and it was the preaching class but you see they don't want to call the preaching class the preaching class, because school school makes you use big words. You can tell people who go to school, because they're always trying to use big words. A person that goes to school or has gone to school will never tell a man he's bald-headed. They will tell him that he has no follicular appendages on the cutaneous apex of his cranial structure, anterior to the gegetal suture and posterior to the lambdoidal suture, where the follicular appendages do habitually germinate. Why don't they just say he's bald headed? In other words, why don't they just keep it simple and say he's bald headed? That's, well, that's what school does. School teaches you to use big words. So, in I was going to school and we had this preaching class, but they didn't call the preaching class the preaching class. They called the preaching class the homiletics class and they said homiletics was the science of which preaching is the art and the sermon is the finished product. And in this homiletics class, the professor taught us to build four different kinds of sermons and then we would practice by preaching to each other. And after the student would preach, we would correct each other and tell each other what we did wrong. Then we would turn it over to the professor and he would finalize it. On this day, it was my turn to preach in the preaching class that they call homiletics. And after I had preached my seven-minute sermonette, you know, sermonettes make Christianettes. After I preached my seven-minute sermonette, the class jumped all over me. I mean, they ate me up raw. They didn't even cook me. And the first brother who stood up was Brother Richard Marlin. And Brother Richard Marlin said to the professor, he's a professor I want to know, you could tell he was antagonistic toward me and he was mad. I want to know why is it he said that every time Johnny preached, Johnny got to have a whole lot of scriptures and a long text. How come Johnny can't do like the rest of us and just get one scripture and go on and speak? said his text is always long as a freight train. And the professor, he dropped his head and he paused a long time. And finally he said, all of us ought to be thankful that Johnny did have a lot of scriptures. In a long text, cause his sermon wasn't no good. The professor said, at least we heard some word, said if he wouldn't have had all them scriptures, we wouldn't have got no word. So I made up my mind that day in the class, whenever I speak, I'm gonna have at least three scriptures or more and have a long text. And that way, can't nobody go home and say, we didn't get no word. Now, I don't care if I don't bring out nothing else tonight. You cannot go home and say, we didn't get no word. I've already given you Judges 12 and 6, Acts 26:28, and 2 Timothy 2:15. And you see, the Word of God is good for everybody. The Word of God will lift your spirit. The Word of God will thrill your soul. The Word of God will stretch your mind. The Word of God will warm your heart. The word of God will tan your hide and the word of God will provoke your will. If the word of God don't light your fire, your wood is wet. If the word of God don't ring your bell, your clapper's broke. If the Word of God don't start your engine, your plugs need changing. The Word of God will do something for everybody. The Word of God, somebody said, is like the Pacific Ocean. A baby can wade in it, and a battleship and a whale can swim in it and sail in it. It is simple and profound. The Word of God is good for everybody. It's a complexity in simplicity and a simplicity in complexity. It's a diversity in unity and a unity in diversity. It is simply marvelous and marvelously. It is simply wonderful and wonderfully simple. And nothing in nowhere is like the word of God. So I've already given you some word. And they said unto them, Say now Shibboleth. And they said, Shibboleth. Because they could not frame to pronounce it right. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When I was going to Samson Elementary School, one time Elder Mitchell came to Detroit to preach for the Eastern District young people. I was the chairman, he was the state chairman. I took him around Detroit, I showed him the school that I went to in grade school, and I showed him this school. I went to Samson Elementary School. Now, Samson School, when I was in the fourth grade, I had a school teacher. Her name was Mrs. Lucille Gloucester. And I thought that Mrs. Gloucester was the meanest, evilest, oldest, ugliest, coldest, White woman on earth. But you know what? After I grew up and could look back at her correctly, Mrs. Gloucester was an upper 30 year old, very physically attractive, blue eyed, blonde, built like a brick house, white woman that was dedicated to the proposition of teaching us youngsters in Detroit's West Side black ghetto our fundamentals where when we grew up we wouldn't be crippled. When you can't read, you're crippled. When you can't count, you're crippled. When you don't understand the language and can't express yourself, you're crippled. Mrs. Gloucester was a called of God school teacher. I mean the woman taught school like her life depended on it. I found out later her life didn't depend on it, it depended on it, ours did. In the fourth grade, Mrs. Gloucester gave us an examination one time on our multiplication tables from 1 to 20. The other teachers made you learn your tables from 1 to 10, not Miss Gloucester, 1 to 20. And my mother told me, she said, Johnny, if you get a perfect score on your tables, I will give you a whole dollar. I thought I was going to be rich, a whole dollar all to myself. Well, now, wait a minute. Hold it. This is 1939. A brand-new Ford Deluxe Automobile was $995 full price off the showroom floor. A baby Ruth candy bar was two cents. A Coca-Cola was two cents and a penny deposit for a bottle, and that was a big bottle of Coca-Cola. I mean, the prices then, you couldn't even believe them. The bus fare was three cents and a penny for a transfer, and the United States postage was three cents. My mother told me she was going to give me a whole dollar. I was going to buy me a dime's worth of candy, a nickel's worth of fruit. I was going to put fifteen cents in my pocket and rattle it, give my sister a quarter, and save a half a dollar. I was going to be rich. And I studied for that exam. I I mean, I really studied. I studied my tables. I had them backward and forward, upside down, right side up. Any way you hit me with them, I could answer them. My sister reviewed me for a whole week. When the time came to take the examination, I went into my classroom, and I don't know what happened. But my computer juggled. And when I got to nine times nine, I couldn't think of it, and I put down nine times nine is eighty-two. And when I got my paper back, I got all of them right, but that one. Nine times nine is 81, and I put nine times nine is 82. I went to my mother, and I said, Mama, you ought to let me have the dollar anyway. I got them almost right. I got all of them right, but one. My mother said, Nope. I told you if you get them correct 100%, you get a dollar. said, You don't get anything. So I went to Mrs. Gloucester. To plead my case, I had tears in my eyes, big as Kennedy, half a dollars. I said, Mrs. Gloucester, I said, if you just let me get that, buy on that one and give me a perfect score, my mama will give me the dollar. And Mrs. Gloucester, she set me down and she said, Johnny James, if you don't learn nothing this year in the fourth grade, I want you to learn this. She said, you said that nine times nine is 82. And she said, now nine times nine is 81. And she said, Johnny James, I want you to learn this, and this is my subject for tonight. Mrs. Gloucester told me, she said, almost right is always wrong. Almost right is always wrong. What I'm trying to get you to see tonight is almost saved is always lost. Almost heaven is always hell almost win is always lose, almost did is always didn't, almost in is always out, cause almost right is always wrong. In this verse here in the book of Judges, the Ephraimites were fighting the children of Manasseh. Now these were Israelites, and they were cousins, and when the children of Manasseh got to whooping the Ephraimites, they tried to slip back across Jordan, and the Ephraimites and the Manassehites couldn't tell each other from each other because they all came from the same stock. Remember when Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, these are the offspring of these two sons, and they're really cousins. And these Israelites were fighting each other in a civil war, but the only way they could tell each other from one another, they both had the same color hair, the same stocky build, the same ruddy complexion, they looked just alike. It was one, but one way they could tell each other, the way they talked. You know what, the way, we can tell where you're from the way you talk. You can listen to folk talk. You can tell where they're from. Look at it now. Here, around here in Grand Valley and Grand Rapids. When y'all get sick, y'all say you're sick to the stomach. But in Mississippi, they get sick at the stomach. And in California, they get sick on the stomach. And up in Connecticut, they get sick with the stomach. And over in Great Britain, they get sick by the stomach. Now wait a minute. All of them got the same thing. They got diarrhea and they're throwing up. They all got the same thing, but they all say it a different way. And the way you say it Is determined by where you live. The way you talk tells a whole lot about you. They knew that the children of Ephraim couldn't pronounce the word Shibboleth. Because they couldn't make that S-H pronunciation with your tongue at the roof of your mouth. So they asked them, they said, say Shibboleth. And whenever they tried to say Shibboleth, they said Sibboleth. The Bible says they couldn't frame to pronounce it right. And the Bible says whenever they couldn't pronounce it right, they'd kill them. And they slew that day at the passage of Jordan. The King James Version says 40 and 2,000. Now that is really 40 plus 2,000 or 2,040 as it reads correctly in the British Revised Version. 2,040 men lost their lives off of the almost pronunciation of a word. They pronounce the word almost right, but almost right is always wrong. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, what I really want to get you to see tonight, and especially you young people, is let's stop hitting that stuff. Let's get in the Word of God and properly and correctly interpret the Word of God. Let's come to Bible class. Let's come to Sunday school. Let's have our own private devotions and let's hook it up and let's get it right because almost right is always wrong. All those people who almost made the Olympic team they, over here in the United States of America, sitting up looking like Texas mule, in, uh, Texas mule in Arkansas, and the team is in Seoul, Korea. Almost don't count. Almost right is always wrong. One of the things that really disturbs me, it makes me so sick sometimes I want to throw up. I'm traveling around the country and out of the country, and I am looking at people, and especially It bothers me in the apostolic world, the way they are taking the scriptures and butchering up the scriptures and letting our precious doctrine fall to the wayside where it don't mean nothing. And brothers and sisters, it's up to you young people to correct this concept. Get the scriptures accurate. Get them right and present them right that the world can know the truth because almost right is always wrong. I'm sitting up in churches sometimes and I listen, I'm listening to folks and preachers and everybody standing up here butchering up the Scriptures. The Scriptures are sacred. The Scriptures are the Word of God. God loves His Word. He doesn't want nobody up messing over His Word and fumbling over His Word and butchering up His Word. And there's too much stuff that people are getting happy about and shouting about that's almost right. And almost right is always wrong. Example, <clears throat> Genesis thirty one forty nine. It says, may the Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. Elder Mitchell says, I want brother, whatever his name is, to dismiss the service. And brother, whatever his name is, says, Will you please repeat after me? May the Lord watch between me and thee, while we are absent, one from another. Now first of all, brother, whatever his name is, didn't even quote it right. It didn't say while, it said when. But, this is not a scripture that is to be used to dismiss the service. Laban and Jacob, were separating. Jacob was a hustler and Laban was a con man. Both of them were sinners, both of them was gangsters, both of them was wrong. And they knew when they separated, the other one was going to slip back and steal everything he had. Uh-huh. And so they said, now what are we going to do? You wrong and I'm wrong. I'm a con man and you're a hustler and I can't trust you and you can't trust me and the CIA and the FBI and the police department and ain't nobody else slick enough to watch you or to watch me. Can't nobody watch us. We both so wrong. What we going to do? And they said, can't nobody watch us but God. Nobody can watch our belongings but God. So they said, may the Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another and that way I won't steal from you, you won't steal from me. Now, we take that scripture and make a prayer out of it, and use that scripture to dismiss a church service. May the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent, one from another. Now, what we mean by the scripture is, Lord, we're going to dismiss this service, want you to go with us, put a hedge around us, protect us from the evil forces of darkness, protect us from the wiles of Satan, and Lord, bless the car I drive in, don't let me have no flat tires. Don't let the car break down, and even though I didn't buy no gas, don't let me run out of gasoline. And you know I'm saved, and I got the speed, so take all the state troopers and either bind them or blind them. The ones you don't bind, blind, and the ones you don't blind, bind, and that way I can speed on through and get home safely. That's all right to pray like that, but don't use that scripture because it don't mean that, and it is always wrong to use a scripture. to make it mean something that it don't mean. Now it almost means that. But almost don't count. Because almost right is always wrong. Now here's another one. <clears throat> Numbers thirty two twenty three. It says, the letter clause, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, how, do they, how, do, how is that scripture usually taught? It is taught that if you sin, you will get caught. Be sure your sin will find you out. It did not say be sure your sin would be found out. It said be sure your sin would find you out. That's a big difference in being found out and finding you out. I'm not going to argue the point as to whether a person that live in sin get caught or not. Some do, some don't. If you think that nobody get caught, then ask Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swagger. They'll tell you that some do get caught. But there are some people who have lived in sin and died in sin and never got caught. The Bible is not dealing with that. The Bible is saying, be sure your sin will find you out. Big time preacher in New York came on the radio. Y'all used to listen to him on Sunday. He fought sin harder than anybody on radio. He knocked out everything. He knocked out makeup. He knocked out jewelry. He knocked out adultery, fornication, homosexuality, running around, drinking, smoking, cursing. He preached against everything. And all the time that this big time preacher was preaching against everything and everybody said he was standing up for holiness, he was cruising in the gay district on the weekends. And sometimes he would have as many as 15 or 20 sexual contacts in one night in a bathhouse in New York. The big time preacher got sick. And he went into the hospital and he told all of his members, over a thousand of them, that he had the flu. He got better and came out of the hospital, but he never quite got his strength back. He went back into the hospital. This time he had his name scrambled. What he did was took the letters in his name, had them scrambled around. That way if anybody saw his medical chart, they wouldn't know who he was because he knew that the human T-cell lymphotropic retrovirus 3, the virus that causes the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, had invaded his body. He knew he had AIDS, and he knew he was dying, but he was trying to cover it up. And when that preacher went from over 200 pounds down to 90 pounds, Even though he never got caught, when he laid up there in the hospital and inhaled his last breath and exhaled his last breath, he knew why he was dying. And the Bible is right. He never got caught. He never got found out, but it found him out. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can smoke them no-name cigarettes if you want to. You can lay around and get high as the cost of living and do anything you want to do, but you know what? Mitchell will preach your funeral. It's going to find you out. I don't care if you never get found out, it's going to find you out. The Bible is right. And I'm trying to get you to see this. Study the Bible, know what the Bible is saying, and let's not use the scriptures to try to say something they are not saying. Whenever you use a scripture to say something, that it is not saying you are doing an injustice to the Word of God and almost right is always wrong. There's too many people preaching what the Scripture is almost saying, but we got to preach what the Scripture is saying precisely, rightly dividing the word of truth, cause almost right is always wrong. Here's another one, Nehemiah 8 and 10, the joy of the Lord It's your strength. Now how is that preached? That whenever the praise services drag and especially into pure black churches, the black church, and I can say this because I'm black, and I preach in mostly black churches, the black church has been done an injustice. They have been fed a lot of emotionalism and not enough word. And they have been trained to get a happy off of cotton candy and don't get no substance. Cotton candy ain't nothing but something to take up a whole lot of space and look like something. And when you get it in your mouth and dissolve it, you haven't got nothing. We need the Word of God. The black church needs to have as much religion in their head as they got in their feet. And then we'll be able to do something to make an impact upon the world, and the whole town won't be on dope, and the people will be living differently. Now here's a scripture that says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. How is that scripture used? I was in a service last week. Sister leading the praise service, the service kind of got kind of quiet. She jumped up and said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then not want everybody to go to hollering and jumping. Listen, being happy ain't never made nobody strong. You are not strong because you happy. We got some people who are so happy They don't even know they're happy. we got some folk who are so far in the Spirit, they don't even know they're in the Spirit. In the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, they told the man of God, Bring the book, open the book, read the book, make some sense with the book, then when they understood what the Bible said, and the Bible understanding was in their mind, that understanding they got from the Bible, it thrilled their soul and made them happy and gave them joy. And the joy of the Lord is your strength, and your strength comes from knowing the Word of God. And it don't mean if you're emotional and you're running and jumping that you're happy. Some people think that you're strong because you all the time. Eco-Mosiah, homo-shunda, he came on a Honda. Who came on a Honda? And I can just dance, dance, dance all night, all night. I don't care if you dance all night, ten nights. <clears throat> Being happy don't make nobody strong. What makes you strong is knowing the Word of God. When the devil came to tempt Jesus... Jesus didn't speak in tongues. and talk about Eko Mosiah, Homo Shunda. When the devil came to Jesus, Jesus didn't tell the choir, strike up a song, I'm going to dance, dance, dance all night, all night, all night. When the devil came to Jesus, what did Jesus do? Jesus told the devil, said, it is written. Let me say this to you, especially you young people again. Whenever the devil knocks on the door of your heart with temptation, don't answer the door. Send the word to the door. Let the word of God answer for you. I remember this guy was going to beat up my daughter, Annie Ganny, at school. And all, my, all my kids can run. When the bell rang, she came out running. Annie Ganny ran home, got in the house, kicked off her shoes, and dropped her books down and was making her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when this big greasy spaghetti-eating nigger come puffing up on the door, ringing the bell for her to come out and fight. But instead of Annie Ganny answering the door she sent her big brother johnny to the door and johnny went out there and i mean he whooped that boy to fare you well what am i saying when the devil knocks on the door of your heart with temptation don't answer the door send the word of god to the door and the word of god will give the devil a whooping like he ain't never had before when you put the word of god on the devil the devil's gonna leave running walking to be too slow and being happy ain't never got the devil off of nobody You cannot speak in tongues your way out of the devil's crisis. You cannot sing the devil off of you, but you can get the devil off of you with the word of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Yeah, they got that one almost right. But you see again, almost right is always wrong. Here's another one. Isaiah ten twenty seven. Everybody running around talking about the Bible says the anointing breaks the yoke. Bible ain't never said no such a thing, and we need, we need to stop that lie. The Bible never said that the anointing breaks the yoke. The Bible said the, the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. It's a big difference between breaking something and destroying something. If your car breaks down, what do you do? Fix it and keep right on driving. If your washer break down, fix it and keep right on driving. If you break something in half, fix it back together and keep right on using it. But if you destroy something, it'll never be used again. Now the yoke is sin. If the anointing breaks the yoke, I see the problem. Folk come into church and quit smoking and quit drinking and quit living crazy for six months and go back and sin. How come? The yoke was broke. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, if that yoke that got our young folk on drugs is destroyed, they'll never use drugs again. If that yoke that has people sleeping around is destroyed, they'll never sleep around again. When the anointing destroys the yoke, you are delivered by the power of God, and you are delivered forever. The anointing breaks the yoke. No, the anointing destroys the yoke. When the Philippian jailer was ready to commit suicide in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, note what happened now. The Philippian jailer had prisoners, and in those days, if your prisoners got away, you did their time. If you if you hold a prisoner, he's doing 40 to 80, and he get away, then the 40 to 80 belongs to you. If your prisoner is going to be executed, then you get executed. When the prison doors were open and the foundations of the prison were shook and broken, the Philippian jailer was ready to commit suicide. The man of God said, do thyself no harm. We are all here. Note what happened they prayed and praised, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. Whenever you break a foundation and destroy a foundation of a building, that building will never be used for whatever it's being used for. The Philippian jail was never used for a jail again. The anointing destroys the yoke, and the anointing destroys the foundation, and when the anointing does the job, then the problem is solved. So the anointing breaks the yoke, we do it. That's almost right. They come in and say it while and they're going back out. but almost right is always wrong. Here's another one. Isaiah 30 I mean, 34th Psalm verse three. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. This is the one that they use on Sunday night. I came to magnify the Lord. And after they get through hollering and screaming, and getting everybody else to holler and scream, they think they've magnified the Lord. Listen, the Bible says, "O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. The word magnify is taken from the Hebrew word gaudel. And the Hebrew word galdel in Hebrew means the same thing as it does in the English. The English word magnify on page 508, column 2, and paragraph 3 of Mr. Webster's complete unabridged dictionary. Mr. Webster said the word magnify means to enlarge, enhance, blow up, expand, or make bigger. You came to magnify the Lord? First of all, 100 Psalm verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord he is God. Saint John four twenty four says God is the spirit. Second Corinthians three seventeen says the Lord is that spirit. Acts nine five says Jesus is the Lord. So if you came to magnify the Lord, you came to magnify Jesus. The word magnify means to make bigger. Well, let me ask you then, and be honest and don't be jiving. What can you do to make Jesus any bigger than he already is? What can any insignificant Homo sapien with his breath in his nostrils, that ain't but two quarts of oxygen in seven minutes away from death. Do to make Jesus any bigger than he already is? Before you showed up in Revelation 19:16, Jesus was the King of Kings. Before you got here in 1 Timothy 6:15, He was the Lord of Lords. Before your great-grandpappy was born in Daniel 2:47, He was the God of Gods. In Isaiah 9 and 6, the wonder of wonders. In Daniel eight twenty five, the prince of princes. In the song of Solomon 1, 1 and 2, the lover of lovers. 1 Corinthians 2 and 7, the mystery of mysteries. The third verse of the book of Jude. The faith of faiths. Hebrews 2, 10, the captain of captives. 1 Peter 2, 25, he's the bishop of bishops. Philippians 3 and 8, the science of sciences. And you going to make him bigger? You're going to magnify him without your help? He's king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods, prince of princes, wonder of wonders, lover of lovers, faith of faiths, mystery of mysteries, captain of captains, bishop of bishops, and science of sciences. But if the Bible said, oh magnify the Lord with me, it's got to be a way you can do it. Well, how do you magnify the Lord? Anybody here in high school got biology right now? Well, you remember when you had it, don't you? You remember when you had to go into the lab and look in the microscope? Whenever you look in the microscope, remember this. Whatever you put in the microscope to look at never changes. The microscope does not work on what you're looking at. The microscope works on you. Magnification never works on what the person is looking at. It works on the person. It doesn't work on the specimen. It works on the person that is using the instrumentation of magnification. My son, Jock, you'll see him tomorrow. Jock had a pair of binoculars, and Jock was looking where we live is a park and across the park four blocks a guy was riding a bike and jock in the binocular, said daddy i can see his shoelaces they yellow said he got a spot on his left shoe said he jock told me everything up he said jock said he's right up here in our front yard i took the binoculars away from jock i said no he ain't he's four blocks across the park i said it looks like he's right here In our front yard now when the Bible says oh magnify the Lord look at it like this the Bible is the microscope Jesus is the specimen when you look through the microscopic lens of the Word of God it allows you up close to see Jesus like he really is but Jesus did not get no bigger Jesus did not change. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. What happened was the microscope let you see him like he really is. The Bible is the microscope, and Jesus is the specimen. When you look through the microscopic lens of the Word of God, you can see Jesus like he really is. So when, when you magnify the Lord, what do you do? You get into the Word of God. All these folks talk about, I came to magnify the Lord. Don't come to Sunday school. Don't come to Bible class. And don't never study the Bible. The Bible is the only way you can magnify the Lord Jesus. And if you are not in the Word and not a lover of the Word and don't study the Word, you'll never be able to magnify Jesus because you can't make Jesus no bigger than He is. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. And every Sunday night, they're tearing up the church, talking about they came to magnify the Lord, and don't, don't know whether Jesus got nailed to the tree or fell out of the tree, because they won't study the Word. That's almost right. But almost right is always wrong. Here's another one. You know, i got a list of 169 of these. And I ought to bring them all out tonight and keep you here till 5 in the morning. 84th Psalm verse 10 I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the thick tents of wickedness now how is that scripture explained ushering that's the scripture to usher you I'd rather be a doorkeeper and the ushers here have been doing a fine job all week I communion, great job But this scripture has nothing to do with ushering. David said he'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. That's the temple. Now, the doorkeeper's main job in the temple was to keep the Gentile men out. The women didn't come in the temple. They had to keep the Gentile men out. And the only way you could tell a Gentile man from a Jewish man was as to whether he was circumcised or not. So the doorkeeper's job was to sit there all day and look at the genitals of men. That's right. The doorkeeper sat there all day, and every man went in. The doorkeeper had to look at his stuff. If he was circumcised, he could go in. If he wasn't circumcised, he couldn't go in. This was the most hated and despised job in the whole temple. Didn't nobody want a job. But look what David, David loved God's house so much. David said, I'd rather have the worst job in the house of God than to have the best job in the world. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness or have those jobs, good paying jobs, working for wicked people. We take that verse. I was the, I was the usher board speaker in Indianapolis, at Bishop Gold's church. And that was their uh, theme scripture. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. They had their little white uniforms on with their their gloves on. How you doing, baby? (laughs) Ask them how they doing in physics and computer science and chemistry and algebra and geometry. And when they talk, they will come go with me. Say, no, you come go with me to the library and learn something. (laughs) <clears throat> the helicopter was too cool to go to school, but he loved to play basketball. The helicopter would go to the basketball court every morning when the sun come up and stay till the sun went down and did it in the winter when there wasn't, wasn't no snow on the court. And the helicopter is awesome. The NBA stars had a pickup game in Detroit, a, a benefit game, and they let some of the fellas from college and some of the fellas from the playgrounds play in the game. There they had the helicopter in the game with Dominique Wilkins and Isaiah Thomas and Terry Cummings and some of the big names in the NBA. Nobody knew about the helicopter. The helicopter stole the ball from Terry Cummings, dribbled around Isaiah, and did a double pump fake dunk on Dominique, and the crowd went up in smoke. They couldn't believe it, and Dominique stood back and just looked at the helicopter. He couldn't believe that it was somebody that didn't play in the NBA, could play that good. Dominique said, where did the nigga come from? He couldn't believe that it was somebody that could play that type of ball he hadn't seen before. But you see, the helicopter wouldn't go to school, and if you don't work in the system, they're not going to use you. Now, if the scripture means your give, make room for you, how come the helicopter is not playing in the NBA? The helicopter works at Ford Motor Company. The helicopter makes $417 a week, comes home every day, greasy as a children, and them guys are millionaires, and a lot of them aren't as good as he is. And we got the scripture says, a man's gift making room for him. And if the man's gift makes room for him, that means everybody that's good, everybody that can play and sing, is going to get a play, get a big contract, sell records and and get rich. It don't mean that. Well, what does it mean? Sister Angelette, you're running for mayor of Grand Rapids. And I'm a dope man. I never went to school. I ain't even to the school yet. But I'm a dope man. And because I'm a DM, I got big money. So I'm going to take this dope money, and I'm going to run it through the laundry, and I'm going to pump it into into your campaign. Everywhere I pump it into your campaign. Everywhere you look, I see your picture on the billboard. Lucas for mayor. Lucas for mayor. You smiling? Lucas for mayor. Lucas for mayor. On television, they're calling your name, and my dope money gets you elected. And now that I'm elected, you're elected to be mayor, and my money got you in, you got to give me a play. Well, I, I don't have no accounting degree. I ain't even been through the schoolyard, let alone the school. Now, what can she do for me? She creates a job for me in her administration and the job pays me a hundred thousand dollars a year to do nothing and she gives me a secretary for a front and the beautiful secretary sits up there looking pretty, smelling good, and doing her nails, making $25,000 a year, helping me do nothing because my gift made room for me. That's talking about bribery. That's talking about paying your way. And most of the folk who get over in the political world and in the religious world, they get over because they pay their way or bribe their way. A man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. Money talks. And that's the scripture that is based upon it. And we got the scripture that if you get it, if you gifted, you will get over. The most gifted people in the world are unknowns. That's almost right. But you see, almost right is always wrong. Here's another one. Psalms 37, 25. David said, I was young. And now I'm old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. And this is one that Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin and the prosperity preachers love to use. Never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. And they'll take that scripture and tell you that means that if you save and walk with God, you're going to be prosperous and always have everything that you want. Hold it, wait a minute. David said he had never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. But David didn't ask Reverend Ansel Mitchell what he had seen, and David didn't ask Brother Johnny James what I've seen. David merely spoke for himself. He said he never saw the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. David never said they wasn't going to be hungry. He said he never saw them begging. It's a lot of hungry people who are too proud to beg. You see them getting skinny. You think they on a fast. They ain't on no fast. They dead broke. The ice box got spider webs in it. They can't kill nothing, won't nothing die. And they getting skinny. and You think they spiritual and fasting? No, they don't have nothing and too proud to beg. Now if that verse, and hold it, now wait a minute. I am not against prosperity. No, what I'm against is using the wrong scriptures to say things that the scriptures aren't saying. That's what I'm against. If that scripture means that, why don't those guys that teach like that go over to South Africa? I got that. Go to South. I've been there. Uh, you know what? I told Elder Mitchell, I know what I know what it's like to be white, because I went to South Africa and they gave me papers and declared me temporarily white for six days. I walked up into a hotel lobby and I was wearing work type clothes and they thought I was one of the regular black South Africans. They can't tell I talked. I walked up to a blue eyed blonde fellow and his sweetheart sitting in the lobby of the hotel and sat near him and they looked at me. And what you looking at me for, fella? I'm just as white as you are, and got the papers to prove it. Yes. Then at that, that last day in the airport, when my papers expired, I looked at my watch. I said, "Well, I'm black again." If that's the real, if that's the real truth, let them go over to South Africa to that South Africans' Soweto ghetto and let them preach in that ghetto there, name it and claim it gospel and tell those black people in south africa name it and claim it i got a beautiful black brother over there he baptized in jesus name got the holy ghost he has a beautiful black wife five beautiful black children he lives in a one-room shack and he makes 497 a year a year he's never seen a toaster he's never seen a washer or a dryer, or a flushing toilet, or all of the stuff we take for granted. He ain't never seen an electric light bulb. He's living over there in poverty. Let let Fred Price tell him, name it and claim it. Let Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagan tell him, name it and claim it. Name what and claim what? The stuff they preach, the stuff they preach can only be preached in America, Canada, Great Britain and New Zealand or any, any affluent society, you can't preach that stuff in India and in places in Africa and Asia where people are poor and living in poverty and starving to death. The real gospel can be preached anywhere and it works the same way everywhere. Right. That's almost right. But almost right is always wrong. If you want to talk about prosperity... Go to Philippians 4:19. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. My God is the bank; shall supply is the check. All your need is the amount of the check according to His riches is the capitalistic backing in glory is where the bank's located, and by Christ Jesus is the signature on the check. That's almost right. But again, then Agrippa said unto Paul, "Almost thou persuaded me to be a Christian." Almost right always wrong. Here's another one. Proverbs 22, 6. Clean up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How is that taught? If you train your children right, they might go wrong, but before they leave here, they're going to swing around and come and get saved. Now, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. That's almost right, and almost right is always wrong. Your pastor knew him. I grew up with a young man. He was the assistant pastor's son. We both grew up in Sunday school. We both learned the golden text and could stand up there and say them all for a whole year. We both were taught the same thing. We both had at least one saved parent. He had two. I had one. This young man, the same age as I, the Lord eventually called me in. I got saved. He was shot down in a robbery and killed. His father was the assistant pastor of our church, and his mother was a sweetly saved woman, and he got killed in a robbery. And I look, I look back at the Scripture, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I knew then that somebody had tricked me and told me that the Scripture saying something that he wasn't saying. So I began to investigate the scripture to find out what is the scripture really teaching. Train up a child in the way he should go. All of you parents, you observe your children. There is a way they should go. Every child is talented in some area. Some are talented in music. Some in art some in language skill, some in mathematical skills. And whatever your child is gifted in, train them up in that. If they're mathematically inclined, guide them toward engineering. If they're artistically inclined, guide them toward being something like a technical illustrator. Everybody has natural talent that needs to be developed, that you can be skillful in this life and always have some way to get money and always be able to be self-sufficient and independent. And that's what will happen when you are trained up in the way you should go. Don't try to make a poet out of a mathematician. Don't try to make an artist out of a language, person lang- skilled in language. Everybody has a way they should go. If you train them up in the way they should go, when they are old, they'll still have something to do and won't be on welfare and dependent on other people. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's almost right the way they got it. But almost right? Here's another one. Malachi 3 and 10. This is the only verse in the Bible that all preachers agree on. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. You never see the Church of God in Christ preacher and the Baptist preacher and the Methodist preacher on the corner arguing over Malachi 3 and 10. They all agree on that one. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. What does it say now? If you bring all the tithes into the storehouse, God said, listen to this, I will pour you out a blessing and you will be unable... To receive it, be for real, be honest. How many of you know anybody that the Lord pulled out a blessing so big and so immense they couldn't receive it? If the Lord bless you with 10 million tomorrow, you're going to drop it in 10 banks and keep stepping and live off. And you know you are. If the Lord bless you with 50 million, you will put 40 million in the bank and hide 10 million in the closet. And keep right on stepping. You have never met nobody that the Lord poured out so much they couldn't receive it. But they'll tell you that. That's almost right. Almost right is always wrong. The tithing in that verse refers to the grain. And the Lord was saying, if you tithe off the grain, till in Israel, the harvest will be so vast. The warehouses will not be able to hold the grain and you have to leave some of the grain in the field for the gleaners to come and pick up. You see, New Testament tithing is as true a doctrine as Acts 2.38. But whenever you use Malachi 3 and 10 for New Testament tithing, you're butchering the New Testament theology. In the book of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews, who I believe was the great St. Paul, but I can't prove it, wrote to the Hebrew Christians who lived under the law and grace. These Hebrew Christians thought tithing was under the law and stopped when the law stopped. So the writer of Hebrews made special mention. He told those Hebrews, he said, Christ Jesus was made a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. And he goes back to the 14th chapter of Genesis and reminds them when Abraham met Melchizedek, coming from the battle, Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of all. You don't pay tithes, you give tithes. You can't pay your way to heaven. You don't pay tithes to be saved, you give tithes because you are saved. All right? The writer of Hebrews said Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. These Hebrews bragged that they were the children of Abraham by faith. Melchizedek, an Old Testament expression of Christ, as the Hebrew, as Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, the believer in Christ gives tithes to Jesus Christ. You don't tithe to Grand Valley per se gospel temple. You don't tithe the Elder Mitchell. You give your tithing to Jesus Christ. That's When you walk around Sunday and drop your money in, remember who you're giving it to. You're not giving it to Grand Valley Gospel Temple. You're not giving it to Elder Ansel Mitchell. You're giving it to Jesus Christ. Now, the writer of Hebrews put that in the New Testament theology to clear their mind up because they thought that tithing was back there in the Old Testament only. And yet we have people who go back in the Old Testament, you tell, I tell you what, take the average preacher and tell him he can't eat no pork chops. You know what he'll do? He'll laugh in your face and order two more and tell you that don't count because it's back there in Leviticus. Then he'll go right back in Malachi and tell all his folk, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. When you use the wrong scripture, you're hurting the truth. When you use the wrong scripture to prove the point, you don't help the point, you hurt the point. So get the right scripture to prove the right point, because almost right is always wrong. Here's another one, too. Matthew 16 and 18. And I say also, sister, give me some more of this, please. Matthew 16 and 18, that's that honey and lemon, that's good, I like that. That's my that's, that's, that's a elder film. that's good for your throat. That'll do the job. I needed that last night. Matthew 16 and 18, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, how do they teach that one? That the devil can't overthrow the church. Now, ain't that pitiful? Any fool knows that the devil... I don't care if your IQ ain't, but .007. You got sense enough to know the devil can't overthrow the church. They got that scripture, the devil can't overthrow the church. They even had a a song, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Y'all heard that one? And all the choirs copied it. Everywhere I go to preach... Quiet, get up. I got so tired of hearing that. The gates of hell should not prevail. And they got the song like, the church is sitting up in the corner and the devil can't overthrow the church. Any fool knows the devil cannot overthrow the church of God. When the Bible said the gates of hell should not prevail against it, a gate or a fence or a wall is something you put up to keep somebody out. A gate is a defense mechanism. Have you ever been walking down Lake Michigan Drive and somebody's gate ran out and attacked you? You ain't never been attacked by no gate, no fence, or no wall. When the Bible says the gates of hell should not prevail, what the Bible is saying is when hell and the devil put up their gates and their fences and their walls, you and I, with Holy Ghost power and Word of God power, and Jesus' name power and blood power and prayer power and anointing power and unity power will kick the devil's gates down. We'll kick his walls in. We'll invade his territory. We'll go in, witness, snatch them out, and win them for Jesus. The church is supposed to be on the offense. The church is supposed to have power. And we got the scripture where the gates of hell can not prevail. And we sitting up in that little corner hoping the devil don't come. But if he, don't, if he do come, he can't overthrow us because the Bible said the gates of hell shall not prevail. We're teaching the scripture backward. We've let the devil take over our cities. And here we are sitting up in our little corner. We are afraid to crack an egg on Easter Sunday. Won't mash a roast. Won't bust a grape. Won't tie a chicken. And most things ain't never laid hands on a rabbit, let alone somebody For them to receive the Holy Spirit, cause the scripture has been butchered and it's been taught wrong. That's almost right. But almost right is always wrong. The devil does not want you to know the power that you got. We'd be praying, Lord, send more power, ain't no more, we got it all. Send more love, ain't no more, we got it all. When you got the Holy Spirit, he gave it to you. We've got to learn how to use it. The man purchased an electric saw, and the man sold him the saw said, You can take this saw, and in one hour you can saw as much wood as you and your son been sawing in a whole day. The man purchased the saw, power saw, went home, kept it a week, and he came back told the salesman, I don't want this saw. He said, I took this saw, and now it takes me twice as long to cut wood. You said I would cut as much wood in one hour as I could not me and my son in a day, and now it takes me twice as long." And the salesman said, I don't understand it. And the salesman examined the saw. He looked at the saw. He said, it appears to be all right. The salesman grabbed the cord. He pulled the cord out. The saw turned on. The man jumped back. He said, what's that funny noise? The man had a power saw and never turned it on. The church has got the power, have never turned it on, and is not using it. It ain't no more power. we got the power. Let's use the power. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. That's talking about the church being on the offensive. That's talking about the church kicking the devil's gates in and snatching them out of the devil's kingdom and winning them for Jesus where they can be new creatures in Christ Jesus. They got that almost right. But almost right, here's another one, Matthew 18 and 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now how they teach that one? I was preaching for this brother and would nobody come out every night, he'd quote that scripture. I said, hold it brother. I said, don't quote that no more. You got that scripture Like Jesus is against a crowd. Jesus is not, if Jesus was against a crowd, wouldn't nobody be here tonight but me and Elder Mitchell and Sister Mitchell, because that's two or three. I said, stop butchering that scripture. You got that scripture like that Jesus don't want nobody here. When the Bible said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That wasn't talking about coming to church and coming to a worship service. That's almost right. But almost right is always wrong. That's talking about Judgment. The Bible says if you see a brother do wrong, you get on the telephone and call all over the country. No, you go to him and say, brother, don't do that. That's ungodly. If the brother don't hear you, take another brother. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, shall every word be established for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's talking about judgment. That ain't talking about having worship service. People accuse, people say, did y'all hear Elder Mitchell put brother jig. Out of the church. Let me explain to you. Elder Mitchell cannot put brother whatchamajig or sister Jig out of the church. And no preacher can put brother or sister jig out of the church. Elder Mitchell to the church is the same thing to the church that the umpire is the baseball. You ever seen a ball game? The runner on first base want to steal. The catcher know he going to steal. So the catcher calls for a pitch out. And as soon as the pitcher throws the ball, the catcher steps wide, catcher steps wide and catches the ball and fires the ball down to second base. And he got the jump on the runner and the second baseman has already got the ball. The runner slides in and the second baseman puts the tag on him and the umpire is standing right there watching. And the umpire says, out! Did the umpire put him out? The second baseman put him out. The umpire announced him out. When you drink that whiskey and lay out drunk, other don't put you out. Your sin puts you out. He announces you out. Out! It's sin that puts you out. The man of God don't put you out. It's the sin that disfellowships you with God and puts you out. This verse is talking about judgment and not having worship. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And it is not talking about the absence of the people is talking about the presence of Jesus. That's almost right. But almost right? Here's another one. I'm going to wrap this up now. But here's another one. Luke 8.35. Every sanctified church has a Sunday night test the liar. Anytime you get up on Sunday night and call yourself testifying and don't be talking about Jesus, you ain't testifying, you test the lion. Every Sunday night there is, is one in almost every sanctified church. I thank and praise the Lord for being here. And they go on and brag on how saved they've been all week. And then they say, and I'm clothed, being clothed in my right mind. Now hold it. That verse there, Jesus healed a lunatic and before the lunatic got healed he tore his clothes off he was the original streaker they couldn't keep him they dress him up he tear his clothes off they dress him up he tear his clothes off and they had him in chains Jesus came by ministered cast the demons out the man and next time they saw the man the bible said he was clothed and in his right mind. Or he was wearing clothes and had good sense. They got that clothed in my right mind. The mind don't wear no clothes. That's why they call it the truth the naked truth. Because the mind don't wear no clothes. That's almost right. But almost right always wrong. is always wrong. Here's another one. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 14 and 20 is a made-up one. I was in a conference in California, and I'm one of the speakers, and I'm on a program with three bishops. Isn't that something, little old Brother James' son on the program with three bishops? And this bishop was teaching, and he kept saying, the Bible said in business be men. Ain't that right? Everybody say, Yeah. And the Bible said, in business be men. Say amen. They all say, amen. I said, if he said it one more time, I'm going to have to get him. <laughs> he did it and one more time. He said, "And the Bible said, in business be men. Ain't that right? I said, no, that ain't right. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Everybody looked at me. I said, the Bible said, in 1 Corinthians 14 and 20, in malice be children and in understanding be men. That's a scripture that was manufactured to keep women in their place. In business be men. You see, a man in the sanctified church with an eighth grade education working on the assembly line can marry a sister with a degree in accounting. He makes 20000 and she makes thirty five. And they tell, and the brothers will tell him, brother, you got to be a man. So he going to take her 35 and put with his 20 and he can't manage a chicken coop. His wife is an auditor in the bank handling millions of dollars and and knows how to budget if he had any sense he would do like me and turn all the money over to mama. Let her manage all of it. He'll be further off. But no, he got to be a man. Uh, in business be men. And because he got the scripture all butchered up, the whole family has to suffer. And he doesn't have near as much as he could have. That's using the scripture to get a point over that is not in the scripture. In bid, The Bible doesn't say, in business be men. I'm not arguing the point that a man should not stand up and be a man in business, but I certainly am against sexism. And sexism is the abusing of women in any way, in the political world, the religious world, the social world, the commercial world, or the economic world. And you know how it is, a woman got to be twice as good as a man to be accepted as half as good because of sexism. And along with that, 1 Timothy... 2 and 12. 1 and tw- 2 and 12. Suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man. There's the scripture that they use against all you women preachers. Yeah. Suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man. The word woman is from the Greek word, the noun ne. And the word man is the noun anur. Gune is wife, anur is husband. And the verse is saying, Suffer not the wife to usurp authority over the husband this verse is not talking about a woman preaching in church it's talking about a hen pecked man don't nobody like no hen pecked man not even the hen that pecked him somebody said it ain't nothing wrong with being hen pecked as long as you get pecked by the right hen well if, if I'm hen pecked my wife is rooster pecked you better believe it you see, that's battering the scripture. You know, you know about battered women and battered kids? That's battering the scripture. And they use that scripture against women. And the scripture is talking about a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. And it's not talking about a woman preaching in the church. And there are no scriptures you can bring up to show that the woman can't minister in the New Testament theology. That's almost right. But almost right. Always wrong. Well, let me close it out now. Let me give you, i give you one more and I'll close it out. Give you one more and I'll close it out. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. It says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, how is that taught? That you praise and you worship and you give thanks for everything. You ever heard that? That you give thanks for everything? First of all, the Bible didn't say in everything. It said in everything give thanks, not for everything give thanks. And secondly, the scripture must be interpreted in the light of what the whole book is teaching to the saints in Thessalonica. The Bible Never tells nobody to worship, praise, and give thanks for sin. What would you look like? I think and praise the Lord for my husband who's sleeping in another woman's bed. And the woman might have herpes. And I think thinking, praise the Lord because he might bring herpes home and give it to me. I think and praise the Lord because i got a daughter on dope. And my daughter is shooting the lights out, and she's out turning tricks and stealing everything that ain't. Listen, the Bible never told nobody to praise, worship, or give thanks for sin. When the Bible says in everything give thanks, it is talking about in your situation, you give thanks to God for all the things he's done for you to help you be everything you're supposed to be in him. And you never worship and give thanks for sin or anything that is, you break your neck leg or foot, you don't say, I thank you, praise the Lord, because I got a broke foot or a broke leg or a broke neck. You give thanks for whatever is in a thankful context. God has done you a lot of things, done a lot of things for you you haven't thought about. You have to learn to be thankful for Him. If you can't thank God for your bungalow, you ain't going to never live in a split-level ranch. If you can't thank God for your BW, Don't ever look for a Mercedes. If you can't thank God for your fake rabbit fur, you ain't going to never wear a full-length mink coat. If you don't learn to give thanks for the little thankful things, you'll never be able to enjoy the other things. And when the Bible says in everything give thanks, it's talking about everything he's talking about in this book of 1 Thessalonians that God has done for you to help you be all you're supposed to be in him by developing your spiritual character and personality, and everything gives thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. They got it almost right, but almost right, almost win, almost did, almost in, almost saved, almost heaven, because almost right is always wrong. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us worship the Lord for Brother Johnny James. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for Brother Johnny James. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Thank you for using him, Lord, to deliver your Word.